It's good to be in the house of the Lord. Amen? Amen. One of the things I love about our Calvin community is that we aren't just in a bubble. It's tempting to be in the bubble, but we have hearts and prayer lives that extend all around the globe. And um, we have a student who said, you know what, I, I would really like us to be praying against ISIS. ISIS, you know, is the Islamic State, or thinks that they're an Islamic State. And they've been doing brutal campaigns. And um, much of their stuff has been directed against Christians, including one of the largest Christian cities in Iraq, which has basically been wiped out. And uh, so this student had passion for this idea, and she said, what if we all stopped on Tuesday at noon to pray? And we said, we love that idea. And so, Bonnie, come on up. Bonnie Carr, everybody. Hi, guys. Um, it's good to see you all. Um, God's just really put this on my heart. Um, it has nothing to do with me. Um, but God just broke my heart um, when I heard about Kedekosh being um, taken over by ISIS. And just imagining my brothers and sisters being killed um, for the sake of the gospel or because they're children um, really broke my heart into pieces. And I just want you guys to be a part of God's breaking heart um, for Iraq and Syria right now. Um, so Tuesday, we'll be handing out prayer cards and red ribbons um, to remind you to pray throughout the day. This is sounding really weird. Um, but we just ask you to, we ask you to join us um, and join us in prayer um, and allow the Lord to break your heart um, through his spirit. And I know he will move. Um, God is powerful. Amen. Amen. Yeah. Thanks, Bonnie. So I'm going to uh, ask those of you with smartphones to take out your smartphone and we're going to have a, a communal, positive use of technology. <clears throat> All right? Yeah, that's what we're going to do. We're going to redeem us some smartphones right now. So I want you to put September 23, you're going to set a reminder. And if you need to lay like, on Tuesday, September 23, at noon, remind me to pray. That's totally fine. Just, just do that. Uh, punch it in. Tuesday at noon. Now, if you have a class, make sure that it's a silent reminder. Tuesday at noon. Okay, and we're going to do this as a community. You'll, um, uh, you'll be the leaders because you you're the first people to know about this, and we're going to spread the word tomorrow and Tuesday through Calvin News and Student News. So when you leave here and you go back to your floor, maybe you have an RA who has an in who couldn't be here, and you can say, hey, Tuesday, set your phone. We're going to be praying against evil and particularly how it's being expressed right now through ISIS, and we're going to pray for the uh, people in Iraq and Syria who are persecuted and scared and pray for the work of justice and peace. So I think that's a really good thing. Y'all got it in? Tuesday, September 23? It's a good day. Thank you, Bonnie, for that. We give an offering here at Loft, and if you've never been at Loft before, someone can tell you what it's about. What's our offering for? The Community Care Fund. Yes. And this is a fund that we have in reserve for students who run into trouble, who run into some financial need that they weren't expecting, something unexpected like a parent dies or a health situation. And we as a community are able to chip in and give them 
uh, a little bit of money to help them through. So some of the things that we've been able to do are fly a student home for a parent's funeral. We've been able to do that. We've been able to cover some emergency surgery that has to happen that's not covered. So this is your money making a difference. And I know some of you are like, man, I only gave a dollar and that was like three weeks ago. Your faithful giving makes a difference. And we're going to be collecting stories of people who've been blessed by the Community Care Fund and sharing them with you, those who want to be public about it. You can also be private about it. So if you have a need and you're like, I don't want to have it be public, that's fine. That's fine. Okay? But this is our way of being faithful as God has been faithful to us. This is how we practice the muscle of giving and get stronger at generosity. It's very easy to be uh, selfish and self-absorbed. And this is the way that we remind ourselves that it's not all about us. And so now let's take our offering for the Community Care Fund.
We not only care for each other through giving, but we also care for each other through prayer. And this week we had two students who lost their parents to cancer. Uh, the first is Mackenzie Voss. Um, there's a picture of her with her dad. And uh, she, um, she's very aware that her dad is finally out of suffering. Very aware that his year and a half journey with cancer is over. And also at the same time, deep in grief. And uh, so we're going to be praying for Mackenzie uh, tonight and in the days to come. And the second student is the student I told you about last week, who's Brandon. That's his father, Brent. Brent was only diagnosed three weeks ago with colon cancer, and he died on Monday. And uh, when Brandon and I were emailing about it, he said, my dad was my very best friend. And so these are two students in our community who are deep in grief. And I know that some of you have lost parents. Some of you know what this is like. And you may not know Mackenzie, You may not know Brandon, but if you were to send them a Facebook message or an email and say, I've been there, I know, I'm praying for you, I think that would mean such a big deal to them. So for those of you who understand loss, I encourage you particularly to keep Mackenzie and Brandon in your prayers. Let's go to God in prayer. Jesus, you have said that you are the resurrection and the life. And we claim that today. We thank you that you know what it's like to lose someone who is dear. You know what it's like to stand at the grave with people who weep and to weep yourself. Thank you that you are not a God who stands far off, who looks down from above, but you're a God who stands next to, who looks deep into us. And so we ask, Jesus, that you will be very close to Brandon and to Mackenzie and to their families in these raw days of grief. We pray that the specific things around visitation and funerals and burials will go well. We pray that they will be affirmed again and again of your love for them, that they will hear again and again in these next few days testimonies from people who are impacted by their fathers, about the depth of their father's faith and how that was lived out in their lives. And Lord, we pray for Mackenzie and Brandon as they think about what it means to be a student with this heavy burden. And Lord, help us to help them, to carry them in our prayers, and if they're in our classes, to encourage them and help them get caught up, whatever they need. And Lord, for those within our community for whom this is a trigger, a reminder that they can feel in their gut about what it means to lose someone we love, we pray that you'll continue to remind all of us of the truth of the gospel that you are a God who has conquered sin and death and hell, and because of that, we have new life. And so we ask that we will live as people of the resurrection, that we will live as people who have new life, that we will reject sin, that we will reject things that lead us toward death, toward hell, 
And instead, again and again, choose life, choose holiness, choose sanctification. Lord, we thank you for the book of James that we continue to read and learn from, someone, a brother of ours who calls us to this kind of living, who says you can live a holy life. You can choose well. And so, Lord, as we open James tonight, we pray that you once again will open us up too so that the gospel that is read and proclaimed seeps deep into the marrows of our bones and so it actually comes right out of us. Take this word and plant it deep in us. And we ask this through Jesus Christ, the resurrection and the life and the word made flesh. Amen. So we're in week three of the book of James. Your Bibles may almost be to the point where they can open to themselves. But Starting chapter 2, page 981. And if you've been involved in the campus-wide Bible study, you know that James is a pretty dense book, right? And every section of James has about 17,000 different ideas going on in it. And it can be really tempted to be snowed under by these ideas and think, I need to understand every single one of these sentences. And maybe by the time we are all 87, we'll have a good shot at that. Um, But for now, we're going to gather what we can gather. So don't be discouraged if in your Bible study you think, man, I I just don't know what he's talking about. I don't know what he's talking about. You read the commentators and some of them don't know what he's talking about. So we're going to, we hit it here in Loft, Monday chapels, Tuesday chapels, Bible study. So keep exposing yourself to James because I find that the more you read him and the more you're immersed in him, the more the Holy Spirit starts to open your eyes as to what the Holy Spirit wants you and us as a community to understand about the book of James. All right, we are going to read chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. James says this, My brothers and sisters, do you, with your acts of favoritism, Really believe in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ? For if a person with gold rings and in fine clothes comes into your assembly, and if a poor person in dirty clothes also comes in, and if you take notice of the one wearing the fine clothes and say, have a seat here, please, while to the one who is poor you say, stand there, or sit at my feet, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, My beloved brothers and sisters, has not God chosen the poor in the world to be rich in faith and to be heirs of the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who oppress you? Is it not they who drag you into court? Is it not they who blaspheme the excellent name that was invoked over you? You do well. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point of it has become accountable for all of it. For the one who said, you shall not commit adultery, also said, you shall not murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but if you murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be without mercy to anyone who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. 
This is the word of the Lord. So we've been getting to know James a little bit. We know that most scholars believe that he was the brother of Jesus. And because he was the brother of Jesus, we know that he was there at the very beginning of the church. And in the beginning of the church, the church was made up of mostly Jews. Jews who came to believe that Jesus was the Messiah. And so they were trying to figure out how Jesus being the Messiah should impact their lives. That's the group to whom he is writing. First century Jews. He's probably writing to them in the late 50s-ish. Early on in the birthing of the church. And because he's writing to Jews, he's writing to people who by and large are being oppressed by Rome. Rome had come in and about a hundred years before this, Pompey, who was the emperor, had divided up the land and taken a lot of the land from the Jews and redistributed it to the people that he wanted to bless, the people he wanted to have on his side. Roman soldiers who were retiring who needed a little bonus present. Any particularly wealthy Jew who was able to pay him off. And so by the time James is writing, he's writing mostly to peasants. Peasants who have been pushed on their land, off their land maybe a generation or two ago, and they were now working as tenants for whoever owned the land. Or they were working as day laborers for whoever would hire them. We can see this in a lot of Jesus' parables, right? It comes out often like, Imagine you're hiring somebody to work in your vineyard. Oh, yeah, we know about that. Or a landowner goes off on a journey and he puts people in charge. Oh, yeah, 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 we get that. That's, that's the environment in which James was writing. There was an oppressing group and there were the oppressed group. And the Jews, by and large, most of them, as with many oppressed groups, fell into one of three camps. There were those who aligned with power. These were upper-class Jews, aristocratic Jews, Jews who had had money and wealth passed down from generation to generation. They were able to buy their way into power. Or they became employed by Rome, tax collectors, for example. So these are the people who aligned with Roman power. And then you had all the people who were just peasants, and they were just trying to make do, trying to survive year in and year out. And maybe, maybe, maybe get some sort of security for their family. And then you had the group that rebelled against all this, particularly against this group. And in the context James was writing in, these were the zealots. And the zealots were, as you might guess, zealous for the Jewish law. They loved the Jewish law. And part of what ticked them off about this group was that this group had kind of co-opted the Roman law and kind of set aside the Jewish law. Because in Roman law, a rich person could sue a poor person, but a poor person could not sue a rich person. In Roman law, if a rich person and a poor person broke the same law in exactly the same way, they would get different punishments. The rich person would get a nice punishment, and the poor person would get a mean punishment. And so these people realized, like, hey, we are already in power, well, this Roman law keeps us in power. We're going to kind of lean into the Roman law. And this was really particularly offensive because the Jewish law was egalitarian. It saw everybody the same. If you broke a law, if you broke a law, you were the same. You were punished exactly the same. 
In fact, there are, there are scholars who study the, the Jewish court system, and they say they were so intent on this that when a plaintiff and a defendant would appear before the judge, they would be dressed the same so that the judge wouldn't know who was rich and who was poor. The intent of Jewish law said, look, you've offended God, first of all, and we're all equal before him. So whether you're rich or poor, it doesn't matter. The law will treat you the same. Roman law said, oh, if you're rich, <laughs> don't worry about it. It's going to be fine. We'll take care of it. And so the zealots occasionally became so irate, so worked up, that they would assassinate members of this group. This is why when James says, oh, you won't commit adultery, but you'll kill somebody, we read that and we're like, what? What is he talking about? Is it a little, you know, a little exaggeration? No, he's being quite serious. You see, in our society, sexual sin is so easy and so prevalent, and the thing that many of us struggle with, that we're like, well, obviously, that's a much harder sin to deal with than killing people, because I, I don't, as far as I know, we're all good there. But for James, he had zealots who were zealous for the law, and they fully believed that taking out a few of these people was to give glory to God. So a zealot would slip up behind an aristocratic priest. Let's say a priest who had been stealing tithe money and not giving it to the poor priests. And in the temple courts, there are a lot of people coming and going, and a zealot could come up and just slip his dagger between the ribs of one of those priests, and then slide into the crowd before anybody knew what had happened. Does James make a little bit more sense now? That's the context in which he is writing. And because this is the context that they were all living in, when they gathered together as an assembly... And the word here is synagogue, assembly, synagogue, when they gathered to worship because there were people from all three groups who came to believe that Jesus was Messiah. When all those three groups would gather together, all of that stuff would come in with them. And a peasant could see a rich person coming in and think, oh man, this is my chance. If I'm really nice to this rich person, maybe she will always hire me when harvest time comes around, and I'll get a little bit more security for my family. Or maybe when he leaves town, he'll put me in charge, and I'll be able to provide for my family. So a rich person would come in, and the poor person would say, Hey, how you doing? I'm so glad you're here. Would you want to sit? Do you need anything? Can I get you something? A little coffee, a little latte, something? Pumpkin spice, anything? Can I get you something? Because there was a way to guarantee their security. A rich person could come in, and think, oh, you know, there's some guy. these are some trustworthy people. I don't know, I may be able to find something. Maybe to find somebody who can work for me. That'd be really great. Yes, I will sit here, and yes, you know, no foam, please. Then you have the zealot who's thinking, I hate you and everything you stand for. However, if I get to know you, maybe you'll give me a little bit of information that I can pass along to my friends. And so all of these relationships that moved into the assembly became transactional. What can you do for me? George Stulak, who's the commentator that we're using as we go through the series together, 
He says, at the heart of favoritism is self-serving relationships. At the heart of favoritism is self-serving relationships. What can you do for me? What can I get out of this relationship? What is a transaction that will be positive toward my account? And because the groups of people had all been dealing this way outside, they brought it inside. And once they started to deal with each other this way, it spilled over in how they saw God. God keeps a score sheet, you see. And God knows that my minor breaking of the law by killing something, someone, is actually, you know, that's not a big of a deal because I'm killing someone who is offending his law. So I'm actually, like, making more points in my God column by killing this person. So I'm breaking the law just a little bit, but actually I'm upholding the law a whole lot. They have this whole scorecard about if I do this for God, then God will do this for me. And the relationships that were transactional outside became transactional inside became transactional toward God. What can I do for God? What can God do for me? Because it's all about me. And this is a particular temptation when a group is vulnerable. And each of these groups in the early church felt vulnerable for different reasons. The zealots felt vulnerable because their way of life and the things they believed in most were being threatened. The peasants felt vulnerable because... A bad harvest or a bad relationship with a supervisor could wipe out their whole means of living. The rich who became part of this new Jesus group were very vulnerable because if people on the outside found out that they actually followed Jesus and actually thought he was the Messiah, they could lose everything. And when, when they were vulnerable, that's when you move into transaction because then you start to grab, what can I get? What can I get? Now, you all are not oppressed Jews in the first century. But you are vulnerable. In our college years, we're particularly vulnerable because we're trying to set up the rest of our lives. And we feel all this pressure to get everything right now so we don't mess up the rest of our lives. And so every relationship feels so weighty, it could tip one way or the other. It's going to help me or it's going to hurt me. So you start taking a class with a professor. You've heard good things. You sit in the class. You like her. She's great. She's smart. She's a great teacher. You think, I'm going to take another class with her. You take another class. You think, I'm going to major in this. And then you find out that this particular professor, who you like, has lots of connections in the graduate program that you want to get into. And you think, yeah, this is good. I did well in that class, and I did well in that class. I'm going to take every class she teaches. I'm going to ask her to be my advisor. I'm going to stop by her office, you know, not once a week, because that's a little heavy, maybe once every three weeks. And I'm just going to pop in and say, hey, how you doing? Good to see you. I'm going to learn the names of her children. I'm going to ask her about them. I'm going to find out her favorite treat, and I'm just going to happen to have it. So that by the time 
It's the fall of my senior year, and I need a recommendation to this awesome graduate program. She is going to be primed to write it for me. What can you do for me? Or maybe there's this girl, and you don't really know her, but you know about her, and what you know about her, you like. You like how she looks. You like the fact that she's in chapel when you're in chapel. You like the fact that she's got good friends and she seems to laugh a lot with them. And you try to think, how can I meet the girl? And then you realize that the brother of the girl lives on your floor. When? He lives on your floor. He's right on your floor. Her brother's right on your floor. And so, you say to the brother, hey, what you doing tonight? You doing anything? I'm doing a thing. Do you want to do my thing with me? Let's go do a thing. And the brother's okay, and you kind of hang out, but you keep working the brother relationship because you think eventually the brother is going to induce me to the sister. Yes! <laughs> what can you do for me? If I'm nice... To this person, she'll do this for me eventually. If I treat him decently now, that'll come back well. I'm going to set myself up so that many of the people I interact with owe me just a little something. What can you do for me? Because if I can set up my life that way, I'll know I'll feel a little less vulnerable. I'll get my future just a little bit more secure. And we get so used to doing this with each other, so used to doing this with our professors and the people in authority over this, that it spills right over into our relationship with God. And we say things like, man, I've been praying and praying and praying for this thing, and I don't know why it doesn't happen. Come on, God, I've done something for you, now do something for me. Isn't that how this is supposed to work? I obey you and you bless me? Look, I've been, I've been the good kid all along. I don't smoke. I didn't drink till I was 21. I'm not going to have sex until I'm married. I try, I'm trying really hard. I'm doing all the things, God. Why is bad stuff happening to me? I thought we had a relationship where I obey and you bless. Isn't that how this is supposed to work? James has a deep heart for this emerging community to get away from the transactional relationships because he knows it will kill them. And so he says to them, my brothers and sisters, do you really believe by these acts of favoritism, by these self-serving relationships, by these transactions you're conducting, that it really shows that you believe in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ? And did you notice that twice, just in this little section, he calls them brothers and sisters, and then beloved brothers and sisters. Now, we kind of throw family language around pretty casually, like, oh, man, she is my sister, right? Brother. We just kind of throw it around casually. And in the context in which James was writing, 
There was Roman law, there was Jewish law, and there was family law. The law of the family. <laughs> it's a Godfather illustration for those of you who've never seen the Godfather. There was family law. And whereas in Jewish law and Roman law, both, if someone did something nice to you, you really needed to pay them back. The law of the family had two big principles. One, if someone in your family was in need, you were obligated to care for them. And two, if you cared for them, you could not expect anything in return. Care for them, nothing in return. Now, shape this up into our three different groups of people all coming together into worship. If a rich person walks into worship and sees a poor person there, the temptation of the community outside is you exploit the person. You can get that person to do anything you want to do because that person's vulnerable and you have power. The law of the family said if you walked in and you saw a person in need, you were obligated to care for that person and not expect anything in return. That person was then free to simply receive the gift and know that there was no obligation for return. James says to them, your relationships are not transactional. They are familial you care for each other, and you don't expect anything back. And you do this because this is what God in Christ has done for you. And you don't keep a scorecard saying things like, well, you know, I, haven't, I've, I mean, the partiality thing's not that bad. It's not like I've committed adultery. He's like, no, 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 that's not the way it works. That's not the way it works at all. If you've sinned, you've sinned. You've crossed the line. You're out. You're dirty. You're unholy. Your hands are covered with chocolate syrup. You're wrong. You're out. You're sinful. You can't scorecard your way back in. You just got to love people and follow the royal law that says, love your neighbor as yourself. That's the law. That's the royal law. That's what you're supposed to do because that's what God in Christ has done for you. Mercy triumphs over judgment. I was talking about this passage this week with a student and we were talking about the difference between transactional relationships and familial relationships and he said, oh, he said, this reminds me. So he says, last year, I lived in a house with a bunch of guys and no dishwasher. Some of you feel his pain. And he said, every week, the dishes would pile up, and they'd pile up, and they'd pile up, and it bothered me so much. He said, because I'm the kind of guy that unless the house is in some kind of order, I can't really do my work. And he said, so I'd come in, and I'd have a big project to do, and I'd be like, oh. And so he said, and I'd wash the dishes like this, you know, like, ding, 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 right? Like, and he said, and I clean it, and I would expect, like, someone would notice that I had done the dishes, and they would say, thank you for doing the dishes. I'll get it next week. But no one ever did. And so he said, I found myself week after week doing the dishes. And all this resentment kept building up in me. And he said, and then one day I'm doing the dishes, and I thought, huh. 
I, sh I should just do the dishes. I should just do the dishes as a way of caring for my house. I should just do the dishes. I'm good at it. <laughs> I'm just going to do the dishes. And he said the moment that I shifted, he said all the resentment went away. And I was just able to do the dishes. Because he had made the transition from a transactional relationship to a familial relationship. I'm going to care for you, and I'm not going to expect anything back. That's what God in Christ has done for us. He cares for us, and he doesn't expect anything back. Now, it's tempting. It's so tempting for us to say, oh, but wait, I've got so many good things I can do. I've got so many good things I can do for God. There are so many good things that he wants me to do, and I'm happy to do them, and surely he expects me to do them, right? Eh, no, no. He doesn't expect you to do them in some way to pay him back because you can't. He cares for you because you are family. And he sets you free from the obligation of having to pay him back, which is a good thing because we could never do it. You could never do it. You could never do it. When we live lives of joy and holiness, when the Holy Spirit is at work within us and we are bearing the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, when we're just bearing the fruit of the Spirit all over the place, that is a response to an expression of gratitude for what God in Christ has done for us. But it's not like God's keeping a scorecard and saying, well, you know, a little more kindness would be great. Let's grow some kindness up. Let's get that going. You know, a little less porn. Let's lean toward that. That'd be awesome. A little more generosity. Let's give a little bit more. You got deep pockets. You could, you could do it. A little less worry, please. Seriously, I am in control. It is going to be okay. You could dial down the worry. God says, uh-uh. I, I really, no, mm-mm. Nah, I'm just going to care for you. I, I don't expect you to give me anything back. No, really. No, really. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to do anything at all. I release you, God says to us. I release you from the obligation of having to do anything. And we see that most vividly in the table. God has given us his son, Jesus Christ. He has poured out his care for us. He has set the table for a feast. And his delight comes from us celebrating the feast. That's all. That's all. It's like sometimes 
you're going to go home for a holiday season or something, and your parent won't have seen you for a while, and your parent is going to look across the table at you and just be looking at you. It's a little uncomfortable, isn't it? <laughs> and they're just going to look at you. And have you had this happen, some of you? Yes. Your parent's just kind of looking at you, and you're like, what? <laughs> what? And your parent might say something like, it's just really good to have you here. Now, in that moment, are you at all tempted to say, oh, and now I'll do the dishes. <laughs> now that you said that, Mom, I will vacuum. Do you have some ironing? I will iron. I have learned how to do it at school for job interviews. I got this down. <laughs> no, when your mom looks at you and says, I'm just happy to have you home, you say, okay. <laughs> right? You don't, you don't feel some sense of obligation, like, well, mom was nice to me, I guess I should clean my room or something, I don't know. Because your mom's just nice to you. That's, that's what moms do. That's what dads do. That's what they're supposed to do. They're just supposed to care for you and pour it on you and be delighted when you come home and you sit around the table together for a meal. And they just kind of look at you. God, I'm just so glad you're home. It's just so good to see you. I'm just so glad you're here. That's, that's what God's like. He says, you know, I've given you my son. And because I've given you my son, that means you get to sit at the table And I'm just so glad you're here. I'm just so glad you're here. Grace. Marvelous grace. Will you pray with me? Oh, God. It is so tempting when we fear vulnerable to try and manipulate relationships with each other and with you to move us towards safer ground. But you have already provided it in Jesus Christ. And the only security we need is right here at this table. And so our Father, the parent who loves us, we say thank you in the name of Jesus. Amen. We're celebrating communion tonight. Loft isn't a church, and so in the polity of the Christian Reformed Church, we have a local congregation that comes and sponsors communion and will be serving the elements. So we're very grateful to the members of Shawnee Park Christian Reformed Church who are here. And then I also want to say that Matt Postma, who is our associate chaplain for upper-class students, yeah, you can woo, you can woo. Yes, yes. Matt was ordained as a reverend, a minister of word and sacrament, just eight days ago. Yes. Yes, he was. And in the polity of our church, when you've been ordained as a minister of word and sacrament, you can 
do the sacrament. And so I've asked Matt to come and preside with me at the table. Matt, will you join me at the table? <laughs> All of you on the first day of school, when you moved in, met your roommate, that's kind of how he's feeling right now. Right there. Right there. He's very excited. Very excited. So we know that this is the feast that the God who loves us has prepared for us. And Jesus did this feast. He began this feast with his friends on the night when he was betrayed. And this is what happened. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread. And after giving thanks to God, he broke it. And gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup. And after he had blessed God, he poured it. And said, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Whenever you drink it, do so in remembrance of me. So every time we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, may the Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. Almighty God, by your power, you raised Jesus from death to life. Through his victory over the grave, we are set free from the bonds of sin and the fear of death to share the glorious freedom of the children of God. In his rising to life, you promise eternal life to all who believe in him. We praise you that as we break bread in faith, we shall know the risen Christ among us. Therefore, we proclaim our faith as signed and sealed in this sacrament. We say together, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Gracious God, pour out your Holy Spirit upon us that the bread that we break and the cup we bless may be the communion of the body and blood of Christ. By your Spirit, make us one with Christ, that we may be one with all who share this feast. We pray in the name of Jesus, who taught us to pray the Lord's Prayer.
our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. We will partake of the feast through the method of intinction. You're going to come up this way through your row. There will be people standing here. One will have a loaf and one will have a cup. You rip a piece off the loaf and you dip it into the cup. Make sure that you rip off a significant piece. We have plenty of bread. It's a feast. And so you guys will come up this way and then go back through. And the same for the bays. Come back up and go back through. There will be ushers who will help you do this. If you need gluten-free bread, please come down this aisle and ask me for it, and I will be sure that you have the gluten-free cup. If you are not a communicant member of the church where you are a member, if you have never taken communion before, we ask you to honor the tradition of your church, and then you can still come forward, and we ask you simply to make a cross over your heart, and you will receive a blessing from one of the servers today. Hear the words of our Savior. Come to me, all who, are labor, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Come then, for all is ready. We come not because we ought, but because we may. Not because we are righteous, but because we are penitent. Not because we are strong, but because we are weak. Not because we are whole, but because we are broken. The gifts of God for the people of God. <laughs> 